Welcome back to another episode of a podcast written by a software engineer. I'm your host, Perry, and boy, are we lucky. I know I say this every time, but this is even more special because we have Swizzits on the show. Swizzits, how are you? Hey, I'm good. First of all, just to say thank you. I mean, I know you're such a busy person because not only you're, you know, a software engineer, but you also do like, honestly, 70 different other things. And this is just an understatement, but I guess like I can definitely dive into it. But let's hear from you. For the people who don't know you yet, like, what have you been up to kind of thing? Uh, what have I been up to? So I'm, a, like you said, I'm a senior software engineer at a startup that's growing really fast here in San Francisco. I run a info product side business, side hustle, whatever you want to call it. I just launched a new serverless handbook a couple months ago. I'm doing a senior mindset. I'm currently exploring what it's like to be a senior engineer and what the difference is between mid-level juniors, senior engineers, and how dif- how you think differently. Um, I do some React stuff, uh, like React for DataViz, and got some old courses there. And I blog a lot, and I'm on Twitter way too much. Yeah, blogging a lot is an understatement as well. Like everything we've mentioned is that like, what what's crazy is that you're not unfamiliar with the front page of Hacker News. That's the one thing that I could say is that over the years of just being a software engineer and being a associate, I do come across your material, even before speaking to you, I've mm-hmm. definitely come across your stuff. And what's so fascinating, so good, definitely one of the best blogs in the engineering world out there, Thank just you. want to plug it out, um, is that it's relevant. All the content that you talk about, when you're talking about the senior mindset and all this like new technology, like React, obviously, but then there's the other ones like comparatively to server versus serverless. Those mm-hmm. are all topics that, at least for engineers, it's like yeah. really geeky and we talk about that stuff. So honestly, today's the pleasure of me and everybody else listening to this, really pick at your brain. And you know, just get a get a little sense of what's going on up there. And also, big congrats on the book. Thank you. I know it's an absolute feat to do it. I can't imagine myself to be anywhere close to that. So I do want to make sure at some point I want to you know pick your brain about that mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, yeah, I think let, let's put this in a bit into context. I guess in terms of every software engineer has you know a background, has a history, has somehow they ended up in this magical world of software engineering. So, for example, in terms of like I guess childhood wise, you remember any like. What does it look like? And was there any like influence that kind of drove you into this path? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'm one of those weirdos who started coding at like nine-ish or maybe 10 years old. And I've probably been thinking or writing code every day since then. Um, so, it, you know, it, it adds up. But the way I got into it was really that this was, I'm going to age myself here, but it's it was in the mid-90s. And... We didn't really have, I'm from Slovenia, so the PC revolution was kind of just happening. I had one family member in my extended family that had a, I think a 486 or a 386 in his bedroom. And I was like, oh my God, this is the best thing ever. And then my parents were like, okay, well the kid's into computers. So like, let's get him a book about computers for kids. And I still have that book somewhere in my mom's garage. Wow. Um, And then actually I got really lucky because the neighborhood we lived in, there was this visionary dude who started a institute for computer education in Slovenia. And he, he did weekly classes for kids and they happened to be held at my elementary school. So I started going to those classes as, like, as an extracurricular and then they got us into Logo. And it wasn't just, hey kids, go have a, a, lab, a, like a lab in school and you're actually just playing video games the entire time. Mm-hmm. It was more like, he was an actual software engineer. He wanted to teach people to be software engineers, computer scientists. So everything was like, we did uh, algorithms, 
nine or ten in logo. Whoa, yeah. yeah. And then at I think eleven or twelve, the curriculum moved on to Pascal, and then it just blew up. Um, I convinced my parents to get me a computer, and I would basically just use this Turbo Pascal thing back then, and just play around all day, every day. Uh, especially once I got the computer into my bedroom. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this was back in the days when you had a family computer that was in a special room for everyone to use. Um, and I, I remember, uh, you, might, you might think this, this is funny, but when I was learning computers and programming, I didn't know English that well yet. So I was kind of piecing together the help files in Turbo Pascal to experiment with things. And I kind of half understood what everything, everything's doing. So I really had to learn by just digging in and trying what happens. And like, it took me until I was, I think, 20 years old. Like sometime in my 20s, I had this realization, wait, these instructions have actual meaning in human language as well. It's not just a symbol. It actually means something. So that, like, that was my introduction to computers. It was like, oh, you use right line to write something to the computer. But I didn't realize that right line also means something in English. Yeah. <laughs> Was just a symbol that you use. It's it's so relatable because when you say that, is that what people look at just code nowadays? Like pick whatever random, random JavaScript code at the end. People yeah. think it's not like oh, it's just symbols together. But then you kind of realize that like somehow you could kind of read it at like a novel at some point. Yeah, exactly. And when you the moment that you were describing right now, when that clicked in terms of like oh these manuals or whatever they want to call it included in their software, like they're actually like novels, <laughs> like they're actually like books that you're reading through. So yeah. understanding your perspective on that, it's so fascinating. And um, it's already great because you always, already mentioned some technologies that people have spent time looking, Pascal. Mm -hmm. um, not many people know about it. Unfortunately, I didn't, I didn't grow up with it, so I didn't get the chance to touch it. But the one point that I actually am so jealous and fascinated and really cool that happens is that your parents were really supportive with the whole thing in terms yeah. of, because the only reason I'm saying that as Thinking back during that time, the whole dot-com era and like the whole like, you know, Y2K and the whole bit, like people were always skeptical with that kind of stuff. Like not everybody's like super into the whole technology bit, but at least they gave you this portal, right? This yeah. portal of exploring <laughs> so much. Um, one thing that I want to ask actually is during your um, classes, elementary school kind of thing, is that when they actually go into like, oh, here's a for loop. Like, how did that look like? Is that... Like even in the Pascal world, I like I don't yeah. know what it looked like from your perspective. I honestly I don't remember those details that much, um, just because it was a long time ago. Mm -hmm. But uh, what I really liked about those classes was that they the they really approached it as a problem solving exercise. They were like it wasn't it wasn't so much a classroom kind of approach where you get this is this is what you can do and then blah blah blah. It was more like here's a problem. How would you solve it? And then we tried to solve it and we tried to dig in. And then in the end, after everyone has been trying for 30 minutes or whatever, it, it felt longer back then because we were kids, but mm -hmm, yeah. it was probably more like 15 minutes. Um, then they would explain it to us and we would go through the algorithms and how it works. Like I remember learning bubble sort and the professor was just like, how would you sort, uh, like just figure out how to sort these 10 numbers. And none of us got even close. It was just completely mind-blowing and then he's like if you just compare pairs of numbers and you mm -hmm. do that and you go through the whole loop quadratically you will end up with a sorted list and I was like mind-blown that I mean, makes no sense yeah he probably lost like out of 10 students he probably lost like eight of them you know yeah. he probably like yeah. lost it and at that point when it starts clicking it's just like it's funny because we do talk about this years down the line like you know way later in your life you probably heard bubble sort or merge sort or quick yeah. sort yeah. later on in your life 
I've definitely heard about this before. So yeah. just a random uh, thing. Did they did they actually call it merge sword or bubble sword back there? Did they have um, like a different way of referring to it? They probably used some Slovenian word for it. Uh, so I don't know. Yeah, I don't remember. I they probably just told us what it's called so that we would know the name. But for me, that was the sorting algorithm. And then I remember, uh, and we also learned like insertion sort and just a bunch of different things that are you know uh, that are appropriate for relatively smart kids in their early teens who are interested in computers. Yeah, and I think it's I think it was such a good call. I guess I mean obviously we're looking back right now. We're kind of mm-hmm. looking about the years, but. Anytime you get younger crowd exposed to this. So the one thing I do remember in my elementary school, unfortunately, I didn't have the exposure that you did, which I'm actually so jealous with. But they introduced us to floppy disks. I remember that when that came out and like everybody had their own, you get your name onto it. And like that started off such like curiosity and that's kind of where it shot everyone into the whole world. Yeah. Or like I remember me and my friend, uh, he had Settlers 2 and my computer didn't have a CD drive. So I couldn't borrow it from him. Oh, yeah. So we pirated it onto, I think, 40 floppy disks. We, we went to the store, we bought these 40 floppy disks, and then we copied his installed video game onto the floppy disks file by file. We didn't know about archiving or zipping or any of that. And then I just recreated all the files on my computer and I had Settlers 2 and I could play it. Yeah, I mean, finally, after, yeah. after so many... It's funny because the thing is, like, you were doing that for fun, but then there were people in the offices that had to, like, copy a load, like, a copy of Lotus, for example, and yeah. then they had to, like, do that for the yeah. whole work. So it's so good to, to actually think about your environment when you grew up there because, I mean, like, that really shaped you to what mm-hmm. you're doing nowadays. And, like, you could definitely take some concept from back then, but you definitely hardened it throughout the years, of course. So... Yeah. Um, one thing that I uh, so first of all, when you're talking about like learning English, like funny enough, English is my third language. So third, wow. Yeah, because uh, I ended up doing school in French, and then my family mostly speak Cantonese at the end of the day. So mm-hmm. when you're talking about reading and learning through the internet and then learning the language, I definitely relate to that because it's exactly how <laughs> it happened yeah. for me. Um, one thing I do remember when uh, a little bit later in my school life, uh, probably end of high school, I guess, I had to choose between history or science. I clearly remember it was two separate paths. By the mm-hmm. time I was maybe like 15 or 16 years old, they were like, you got to choose one, you got to figure it out. And very fortunately, like I just went over doing sciences. Was it, did you have some like some similar scenario where at some point you had to take like either, you know, a decision onto mm-hmm. what you want to move on with? Yeah. So in, in Slovenia, the school system works so that uh, it was in eighth grade. Now it's in ninth grade. The end of uh, that grade, you go, you do like exams. And they say which track you're going to go on, whether you're going on the smart people track or the people with worse grades track. And, I, you know, I don't want to say anything bad. <laughs> uh, it is, it's actually really early in your life to be making decisions like that. It's kind of It's kind of stupid. Like, at 14, it basically um, determines the trajectory of your life going forward. It's kind of insane. But... I went, I decided to go to a general high school with a computer bent. So I had, uh, I could go to any university afterwards, but I had a lot of computer classes in high school. So I had like a database class, a networking class, um, a lot of algorithms classes in high school already. So that was cool. And then towards the end of high school, I made the real decision. I was like, well, I'm really into art. And I want to become an artist. And I was deciding between art school and going into computer science. And at some point I realized, wait a minute, I actually like building the website where I'm hosting my art 
more than the actual art that I'm hosting. I keep doing a lot more to the website than I do to the art. And I decided to go into computer science, which was probably a good decision. Yeah, it sounds like a gift and a curse at the same time. I love art, but I got to put it somewhere. I got to find a place to put it. And the next thing you know, and back then there wasn't the luxury of easily having yeah, websites exactly. spun up in like two seconds. Yeah, so. back then it was a lot of work, especially if you don't know as much about the tools and you just build everything from scratch, yeah. which is a good learning experience. Of course. You remember the times where you had to drag an HTML file into like the browser oh or something? Like that or was like uh, log in directly into FTP and just edit live in production yeah yeah <laughs> and you get it wrong and it's just a blank white page and then you comment out your files and do kind of like a binary search to find which line is wrong and you hope nobody's on your website during that time it's yeah. always so funny yeah that's um uh, one thing i'm actually baffled already is that like during even before getting to university and before making decisions yes great um you were mentioned that you've already done a good amount of like cs knowledge before getting to like an official degree mm -hmm. and everything um so at least from my experience, I, I got exposed to like the CS pretty late. So I actually started my university in physiology and math. So I had like a double major into it. And then mm -hmm. I swapped into comp sci. So in terms of actually learning the concepts, I was basically like year like one of university at that point. Mm -hmm. I want to compare in terms of what you saw during high school compared to what I saw in university. <laughs> Maybe that's a better way to look at okay. it. But. So you were throwing, um, for example, like databases. Like what did they actually go over when you were in high school? Um, so looking at that. The high school databases class was more, it wasn't as much about how databases work themselves, it was more about how to use them. We learned SQL, we mm -hmm. learned, um, I think it was mostly about SQL and joins and all of that weird stuff. Whereas when we did databases in college, it was more about B3s and optimizations and SQL was more like a, oh yeah, that's how you use it. It doesn't matter as much. You're, you're going to be the people who design the database, not the people who use the database. Um, it was just kind of a weird, interesting side note to my college experience is that I, we were all, in, or I was in the, uh, in the university track where the goal was for us to become like the future of computer science or the next batch of professors, or at least the, the ones, those of us who were good enough, I wasn't. Um, so the, we, there was always this undertone of you're the people who, who are going to advance science. You're not going to be those weirdos who do business applications. That's like a waste of your talents. And now all of us are doing business applications because it turns out that's where the money is. Yeah, it's, it's so funny because the word I throw very often is academia. Um, a yeah. lot of times when you do a degree in CompSci, depending on the institution, of course, they, they have this bias that you're yeah. going to get shoved into this whole academia track at the end, yeah. which is what you were referring to in terms mm -hmm. of like the whole... Uh, smart enough thing. I didn't end up doing that path either, so I'm definitely on the uh, application. Though. And the thing is, like, for I guess, like, if somebody's not in tech to try to understand this, basically, like, academia is very theoretical. It's really mm -hmm. optimizing, even for the database example, for example. Yeah. When we talk about sharding and indexing and, like, as you're saying, the B-trees and all the algorithms mm -hmm. so that people spawn new databases into it, that's very theoretical because on paper it needs to work. But then when you try to apply it, that's like, or when it actually works and then you kind of, like, market and everything. That's kind mm -hmm. of where the applications are. People use it. People try to understand how to use it. And that's kind of, I guess most people end up doing that nowadays. Like yeah. I'd say like 90% plus of the people I know at least end up doing working in the engineering field mm -hmm. rather than going into academia. Um, no disrespect to the academia. They're really smart and they definitely contribute to it, but it was just not the contribution I was smart enough to do. Yeah, exactly. I have the same problem where I kind of want, I've always been fascinated by the academia track. I just don't have the brilliance for it. 
I like I'm much better at taking those concepts and applying them and doing like computer engineering, which is the application of computer science to real world problems. I'm not good enough to like write comp sci papers or proofs on computability and that kind of thing. But I don't want to discredit anything that you've done already because you recognize what you can do and also even just uh, if people don't know, you share a lot of knowledge. And in terms of like giving back, that's very important, especially in, when we're talking about like more than just being self-engineered. We're definitely going to dive into that in just a mm -hmm. bit as well. But that is something that I've always appreciated, even if you never went to academia, because academia, it's really easy to share your knowledge because yep. that's kind of part of your job is like to yep. share with everything. But when you go into practical applying software engineering, you know, in the, the real working world, mm -hmm. you don't always get the opportunity yep. to give back and do it. So thank you for that. Thank you for <laughs> taking the time to do it. Um, when you were saying that you were in uh, college slash university, however you want to refer to that, that was, that was the, the bit where, I guess, you started getting exposed to other engineers. Or how did that feel like? Because I know, like, as you grew up, you already, you know, mm -hmm. had a bit of classes. You already had other people into it. Yeah. Was it, like, a big shock when you dove into, like, the bigger world of university and then comp sci? Like, what did, what did people-wise, your, your neighborings, uh, what did mm -hmm. that look like comparatively? That's a great question. <clears throat> I... Like, I was definitely one of those cocky early 20-something dudes. So I thought I was the bee's knees and everybody else who's like, ugh, these people getting into computer science for the first time. I've been doing this for years. I'm so much better. I totally wasn't. And what, what, what actually ended up happening is that I probably coasted on my laurels a little too much compared to others. It's like the first year, especially the programming classes, were super easy because I already knew everything. But I wasn't paying as much attention as some people who came in with a fresh perspective and they were learning really fast. And then come second year or third year, suddenly it's like, oh, wait, shit, everyone has caught up or surpassed me. Oh, my God. Um, so from that perspective, it was a really good push. But what I think was, was really nice about what I appreciate about my college experience, uh, and I never graduated, by the way, I was there mostly for the learning is just being exposed to a bunch of things that I never would have found on my own. Mm -hmm. um, like I tried to learn machine learning on my own a year or two before it was a class in university. And I just learned a bunch of little details and random things because I was doing it from Wikipedia. And back then I was too broke or too proud to buy a text, to buy somebody's book and get a nice introduction. I was trying to infer from details. So I, get, I got a lot of just knowing a lot of trees, but I didn't understand the forest. Whereas with a, with a proper class, what you end up getting is the forest first, and then you plug in the trees and the details. So you kind of have a broader picture of how things fit together. I absolutely love the imagery. Like this is a so easy way to absorb it. The words I was going to throw in there was uh, breath versus depth. Yep. That's, I guess, the more technical, technical terms of the trees and forests. But it is the same meaning at the end of the day is that when we talk about, uh, I guess, a bit of hand-holding, right? So mm -hmm. when you go into these university degrees of comp sci, like people kind of sometimes, I sometimes discredit them, be like, oh, you could learn all this online or whatever. But not really. Like when you go into these classes and courses, like you have somebody who actually uh, focuses on, okay, here's the general concept, mm -hmm. but here's what you didn't know about it. And then yep. you just get into really deep into, oh, uh, I had a really great algorithm class, for example, and they were talking about these uh, machines that you could build. And machines, we're talking about decision machines, mm -hmm. like Turing machines, sorry, Turing that's machines, the term for yeah. it. And it's just that, that, like, first of all, didn't know they existed. So that's mm -hmm. where the breadth comes in. And then, like, as you get into it, that's kind of the depth of yeah. how much you know, how much more you can know about it. So 
Um, and that's something that you keep with you throughout your whole engineering career, right? Like the yep. depth and breadth of what you do. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how it helps you grow. So that is so good that you actually already are exposed to that <laughs> during the, the university phase. And uh, yeah, I'm actually really proud that you just say you didn't finish it. That's one of the things that a lot of people like always have on their mind at the end of the day. Uh, I suffered through it, so mm -hmm. I barely finished it. That's how <laughs> I put it at the end of the day. Um, from your perspective, actually, uh, what did that end up during that period of time? Like everybody, like especially as a software engineer, very mm -hmm. self-conscious. I'm, I'm very self-conscious of where I am, what I'm, what I'm going to do kind of thing. What, what happened at that point? What's the story there? Like, because obviously that propelled you to so much bigger things. <laughs> yeah, so um, one of the benefits of going to school in Slovenia is that it's free-ish. I think my tuition was maybe $200 a year for, a, for administration fees. Um, and we pirated all of our textbooks from the local print shop that actually you just showed up and you said, I have this class and they already had it on their hard drives and they just printed it for you. Uh, they didn't even photocopy it. But anyway, that's efficient. As far as I know, that's efficient. Oh, great. Yeah, compared to everything else, go on, go on. Yeah, like, and we would print, get them printed with uh, four textbook pages per A4 sheet so that you would save on printing and then you would like study with a magnifying glass. Um, but what, what I, the biggest problem at that time in our college was that I think it, the average time to complete was about eight years for a f three or four year degree because everyone ended up getting jobs and dropping out of college and for, or like just forgetting to come back. And that's kind of what happened to me as well. I gave myself a, in 2012, I came, um, so I started freelancing for American companies during uh, while I was in college because the job market in Slovenia, at least back then, wasn't that great, even for software engineers. And I wanted to do bigger things, so I wanted to do, work with American companies. So I started freelancing, and then the freelancing kept getting bigger and bigger and kept taking more of my time. So in 2012, I came back from the U.S., uh, I came here to be an intern at a Y Combinator startup while they were in YC. I came back and I was like, okay, well, I have about a year of college left. If I don't fit, I'm going to really focus on just college this year. And if I don't finish, if I don't finish by the end of this year, I'm going to drop out. And, uh, and I mostly, I ended up really loving that year of college. Turns out that when you actually focus, it's a lot more enjoyable than when it's something that you're like, fuck, I don't have time for this, but I got to do it because everyone says I got to be here. Um, it's a lot more enjoyable when you actually focus on it and you go, I just want to study for this year. Um, and then I ended up dropping out with, I think, two or three credits to go because I just couldn't get them. I couldn't do them. And the way it worked out is I would have to take another full year of college to be at the mandatory tutorials and everything to do two credits. And my freelancing career was like just taking off at the time. Everyone was emailing me uh, with projects. And I said, well, like, this is just isn't worth it. I'm just going to go and freelance full time. So yeah i'm like in my, in my brain i'm just clapping i'm just like well, well done whether it is obviously nobody wants to hear about that bit where it's like oh why'd you give up on that but then con contextually yeah. it made sense and then the the pieces were falling together and then even if i have to put myself in the shoe of today imagine if i'm sitting there and going through a program right now mm -hmm. and then given all these different opportunities of freelancing coming in and like trying to focus because when you're saying focusing for a degree it's all very time consuming on the brain on the body on the yeah. mind physical and all that 
Um, I don't even know what I would do today if I was exposed to that. Uh, at least for a bit of context, when I was in university, I didn't actually do, do that too many, uh, I guess, like freelancing job or internships, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, I was basically just working part-time jobs in like clothing stores. So like I ended up picking up at university at least. So that kind of worked out. So, but if I was exposed to that, God knows if I would have ever finished that degree at the end of the day. So really, really fascinating to hear from uh, your take. One thing that people probably are very interested in is um, when you're saying you had a side of freelancing while studying, mm-hmm. some people are very interested into that. Some people want to know what exactly that entails, like the zero to ones to freelancing mm-hmm. basically. What was kind of, I guess, your experience back then of juggling, like initially the uh, course load and also freelancing? And even where did that come from? Like, where did, where did the freelancing come from? Oh, man. Um, yeah, so in Europe, um, or at least in my part of Europe, if you want to make real money with programming, you have to go into business for yourself. It's not like here in Silicon Valley where it's like, here is $300,000 a year to write code for us. We don't have that there. The I think the average or median salary for a software engineer in Slovenia is around $40,000 a year. Uh, and back then it was even less. I think my first my first coding gig back home was I think five bucks an hour. Oh wow, yeah. Um, Perspective. Yeah, that was my that was my first coding gig and the, towards the end of high school was five bucks an hour. So but with freelancing, you can immediately charge a lot more and you also have a lot more freedom. And because you're a business, you can also have, you end up, you can build multiple streams of income. You have different clients. You're not dependent on a specific client, uh, like a job. I think of jobs as clients. You may think of them otherwise, but I find that a helpful perspective. So if you have multiple clients, it's easy, your, your entire life becomes more robust because you can... You have uh, different sources of income. If anything goes wrong, you can always switch around. And the way I approached it was that I realized at some point while reading Hacker News and stuff, like, okay, I'm a software engineer. If I work for European clients, I'm going to make a certain amount of money. But I'm doing the same stuff that all of those weirdos in Silicon Valley are doing, and they're getting 10x more or 100x more. I would rather work with those companies than with the local companies um, because, you know, money is nice. So I, I started by having a couple of local clients and I already had my blog at the time. So I had some sort of, I didn't have much of a brand, but I had a bit of a brand. So I started with just the week, uh, the Hacker News monthly who's hiring threads mm-hmm. and I would just find anyone who I thought I could help and I would email them and be like, yo, I am a freelancer. I'm, I'm from so-and-so country. Like I can do stuff for you. This is how I can help you. And some people, some people bit and I was able to make a very reliable living like that. I spent, I think I did the first five years of my career were freelancing and building a freelance business. You made it sound so simple. You made it sound so simple where you just go onto the internet and do it. And the things like this is all abilities, descriptions of not just somebody who's a software engineer, but just like, you know, you got the entrepreneurial mindset, you got the, you got the go get it mindset. And that's something that you don't exactly learn in school. Mm-hmm. It's not something that like nobody told you to go reach out to these people and be like offering your services out there. And yeah. that definitely does round your character as not only a software engineer, but just, you know, somebody who works in tech, right? Mm-hmm. It's more than just 
smashing code at computer because yeah, very fortunate a lot of people could do that. But reaching out to people and knowing where to ask them and also when is a very good, you know, combination mm-hmm. of doing it right. So you, even just like hearing you going onto Hacker News back then, right? Like nowadays yeah. Hacker News is very, very popular. God knows if it was back then. It, it probably still was, yeah, I guess. this was like 2012. This was, it was yeah. probably already, it was pretty popular already, at least in the scene. Exactly. So, and then you were managing to leverage that and like, make sure with your brand and your blog mm-hmm. and everything else that is something that is very admirable and I think like if people are interested into that it's one way of getting into it that actually works out pretty well so um, one thing I really want to emphasize when you said uh, I'm doing the same thing as somebody else in the States like I've had this conversation so many times where um, so I used to work in London mm-hmm. and then after I moved out of London to work in the States and I also did uh, software engineering in, in Hong Kong for a little bit as well yeah they're asking me what's 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 the difference like why why are people getting paid like so much more in the States and then like honestly my at least I'll, I'll share my thought on mm-hmm. it real quickly is that the best engineers I've met in London are very capable and they could easily slot in any teams as far as I know in the States or whatever mm-hmm. But the thing is, like, they'll be paid so much less. Like, they're brilliant, brilliant, brilliant minds doing the nearly the same work, architecturing, whatever designs and third-party systems, trying mm-hmm. to make work with systems, all capable of doing it, all doing it, actually, like, day-to-day. But they just end up getting paid less, probably because it's rounding. There's loads of different factors. But mm-hmm. when you brought that up, that just clicked into my head. I'm assuming that you have a... Yeah, so my, my philosophy on that, um, and it wasn't back then. Back then, I was just kind of figuring it out now it's been more developed is that the amount you make isn't so much about what you do it's who you do it for mm-hmm. because like a company in the US especially a startup in the US who's targeting the, the whole of the US or even the entire world the amount of value they get from what you do is just so much higher than a small startup or a small company in Europe can like Think Google, for example. I know they're the big, ba- the big bad guys. They're no longer a startup, whatever. Mm-hmm. But if you look at their financials, even just on Wikipedia, I think they're averaging $1.7 million in revenue per employee. So if you're providing a million, like, even a million dollars of value to your company, how much do you think can, they can afford to pay? Or how much is it worth it for them to pay you? Whereas if you're working with a European company that's like scraping together $5 million a year in revenue, which in Europe, or especially in my part of Europe, is a lot of money, a huge company, that, that would be considered a, huge, a big successful company. They can't pay you 300K to write code. They're not pay, even paying their CEO to do 300K. Yeah, I, I love this conversation. So when you put all that into comparison, for example, like, definitely where you work for, who you work for affects it. Even though the nature of the job itself, I'm gonna write the same line of code as somebody else yeah. out there. That's always fascinating to, to think about. So yeah, thanks for sharing that insight. I didn't actually know uh, they did revenue per employee. That's a really good metric yeah, to think revenue about. Revenue per employee is, uh, so I know this because I one of my earlier things was also running a startup and doing business. So revenue per employee is from what I know, one of the most important metrics in business. Uh, that's how you know how efficient the business is. That's why like uh, when WhatsApp was acquired, no, yeah, when WhatsApp mm-hmm. was acquired for billions of dollars, why it's so impressive that they had only 50 employees or when Instagram was acquired, why it's so impressive that they had only 13. It's because that means those employees are ridiculously effective. Exactly. But that effectiveness comes with the scale that the US market and the VC ecosystem that exists here can provide. 
I was gonna say, yeah, and the modern examples, you have different teams. What was the lady example? I think like Robinhood, they were saying, had like a small yep. team or something, and they were saying Zoom also had a yep. small team. Whether you like or don't like their business at the end of the day, this is just like an objective bit where I guess they were a very efficient group of people yeah, exactly. doing what they do nowadays. So, yeah, or, um, Another analogy I like to use is if you want to, if you want to be an actor, you can be an actor anywhere in the world, especially in theater. But if you want to be in blockbuster movies, you have to be in Hollywood because that's where blockbuster, because that's where the ecosystem that knows how to do that sort of thing and the money exists. It's the same with software. If you want to be on the VC rocket ship stuff, if that's for you, then this is pretty much where you have to be. Exactly. At least for the current landscape, you always hear about people disrupting it. Everyone has to be the next hub. Miami, for some, for some reason, yeah. comes up to my head. But the thing is, like, objectively, what are we, 2021 nowadays? Um, that's, I agree with what you're saying in terms of that's what it looks like. The, mm -hmm. the tech money definitely throws to Silicon Valley. Yeah. And uh, it's like, um, this is an old stat. I looked at, at this many years ago. But the last time I checked, Silicon Valley had more... Uh, startup investment than all of the other hubs combined. That's insane. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and and the uh, the public transport is still garbage out here. So oh, yes, definitely. <laughs> there's thing, a lot of poop in the streets. Yeah, so one thing I'll be like, yes, they'll invest a lot into that, but for us, I mean, obviously it's a really complex matter to figure out how to do it, but mm -hmm. uh, the current status for sure, like that's why it's so attractive to be in the Bay Area. That's yeah. why it's so attractive to be Silicon Valley. I do be wearing the same code. I mean, I put it really simply, but I'm saying is. You're writing the same code, just maximize mm -hmm. the, the yeah. what you get out of that one line of code. Um, I actually want to follow up, actually, because you we were talking about this freelancing bit, and you also mm -hmm. mentioned um, being a founder and also a full-time employee, and those are all very different things. Well, similar, but very yeah. different things at the end of the day, and I definitely want to explore that. And very fortunately, you have done all of that. You have, mm -hmm. you have done freelancing, founding, uh, startups, and uh, working full-time. So I think your current status today is you're a full-time employee yeah. and founder as yes. well. Um, let's talk about real quickly founding um first of all for the i guess the non-tech and tech people what is being a founder and then i'll follow up with a bit of hey how do we get into that <laughs> all right um so basically being a found being a founder is as easy as saying i'm a founder and just starting something that has the potential to grow into a real business um either by doing it yourself or by immediately getting people to help you out but the idea the difference between being a founder and being a self being self-employed is that as a founder, your goal is to build a business where you don't have to be involved in the daily operations of the business. You're you're essentially building an asset that is either sellable or that can run without your involvement. Whereas when you're self-employed, which is the typical freelancer approach, the idea is that you're making money for yourself. Potentially, you have some people employed as well, but the main go the main goal is to make money for yourself. That's actually really cool. Um, just a little to tie between freelancing and founder. Mm -hmm. Is it fair to say that both need to be incorporated, or there has to be some sort of? Uh, so there's a there's a really cool thing in the U.S. where to be self-employed as a freelancer, you don't have to incorporate. Um, you just have to start filing taxes as self-employed, and you are de facto a business. Um, but if you're a founder, usually you do have to be incorporated, especially if you have investors, uh, just because that way the, you get the uh, limited liability protections and basically the, your company becomes an entity separate mm -hmm. of yourself, which is the important difference between 
founding and being self-employed. And of course, and every country has their own different uh, yeah. take on, I guess, incorporation, LLCs or whatever. It's like yeah. all the other fun stuff out there. Um, I mean, we're going to spend hours talking about that. But what I do want to <laughs> get, at least from your perspective, is you've been a founder. Not everybody gets to say that. It's really like a big opportunity. What was, um, what was the intention there? What was the idea? Like how, at what point do you realize that you're sitting there like, oh, wow, I, I founded this. Yeah, um, that's a good, good question. So I've done it a couple of times now. Uh, the first time I was a founder, we was in during college in like 2010. Um, I was spending a lot of time on the internet, and I realized, hey, we could probably use some sort of machine learning approach to organize all of these tweets and Facebook posts and RSS stuff into like a uh, prioritized, personalized feed of information. Uh, that didn't work out. I didn't have the skills or the resources to make it happen. But these days, you know algorithmic feeds are everywhere so I, I i count that as a good idea i just wasn't able yeah, to execute it was good i was gonna say it was a good idea <laughs> um more recently like um i've i've kind of shied away from the founder perspective i've i i like to think of myself as just a guy who does things on the side but it is i am essentially being a founder and i'm trying to turn things more into a business rather than being self-employed um but I think for most people, it's kind of a transition. Very, very rarely, like you have a lot of people who say, I want to be a founder and they have that as a career goal. But I really think you should start with a problem you want to solve. Mm -hmm. And then being a founder is kind of, well, we got to do all of that to make it possible to solve the, to solve the problem or to help these people. Yeah. If you start with the goal of being a founder, you end up with like crypto punks and... <laughs> stuff like that the thing the thing the one thing uh, i could actually see when people um are founders that they will I, they rarely would notice that they're their founder at the end of the day the, the do comes first so you do the do and mm -hmm. then the founder sure you could call that after so whether yeah. it's that doesn't have to be tech at the end of the day whether you have your own bookstore like you have your own book collection and you turn yeah. it into a book business that kind of counts as that or the people mm -hmm. that are, are really good at decaling cars for example and then next yeah. thing they're doing founders out there. If you want to make it your own brand, your own entity, whatever, mm -hmm. incorporate that, then that's kind of, I guess, an understandable path to it. Yeah. For people in software, most of the times we don't do our own decals on our cars or something. That was a random example. Mm -hmm. But people love building and that's the, the connection between building and making it into, you know, a self-generating, self-living yep. being, living organism, or you want to call it that way, mm -hmm. and just let it roll like that. So that's a really good perspective on, I guess, the founder world. And you're definitely scarred from it in terms of you have loads of battle scars, which is good because those are that's what eye opens. You know, that's yeah. like the stuff that gives you a different, complete look on how to solve problems at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. um, the other bit that is a little bit for me less interesting, but everybody does at the end of the day. Full time employees. I'm a full time employee for the longest time I could think of. I haven't really gone through the whole freelancing and uh, mm -hmm. founder job, and uh, you've done that as well, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah. What? Well, what's the link between I guess the end of your daily college life mm -hmm. to being a full-time employee. Yeah, how did, how did that uh, transition yeah, so go? I, when I finished, uh, when I dropped out of college, I was a freelancer for a long time and I was mostly freelancing from Slovenia for American companies. And I had the idea that I want to come here because back home I was starting to get kind of lazy. There was, there was a lot of income arbitrage going on. And you know, when you suddenly find yourself making, I don't know, two, two eggs, the median or two or three X of what everyone around you is making, you kind of get lazy, you get very complacent. And I was like, wait, wait a minute. I'm like, 
26, 27, I'm too young to retire. I want to go and push myself hard. So I decided to move to the US, to Silicon Valley, because I wanted to be in this environment that really pushes you and um, lights a fire under your ass. And it turns out that getting visas as a freelancer is really hard. And also Silicon Valley does not want to hire freelancers. Everyone wants to hire full-time employees so it ended up being easier to find a full-time job at a startup. I, I've never had a big corporate job. My current company is, we're at like 170 people and that's the biggest, the absolute biggest company I've ever worked with. Um, so I kind of got into that full-time role because I realized that I can use the full-time job to fund my side hustles and my businesses and still go and have that entrepreneurial path that I've always wanted. But I can also do it just easier because um, like people in Silicon Valley just pay ridiculous amounts of money for software engineers. <laughs> that's, that's definitely one, uh, one attribute that you could describe the whole valley. But also, uh, now, now that you've had this, uh, just your physical person mm -hmm. being in the Silicon Valley, the, I guess, osmosis of absorbing everything around yeah. you must have been a completely different shock, I guess. Not only were you going from, I guess, like freelancing and obviously like maybe mm -hmm. remotely communicating even back then, now you're, you're facing people. You're facing yeah. people full-time on-site kind of thing. It, this is kind of like a similar question. When we're talking about joining the big leagues from going from high school to mm -hmm. uh, university, was that, was that shocking to you going from, I guess, more remote freelancing from that yeah. part of the world and just actually being a person standing in the middle of whatever company it is and talk to other engineers from the Bay Area? Yeah, it's definitely very different. Like One, <clears throat> one thing that really surprised me was and I don't, this may be just an American thing or it could be a Silicon Valley thing. Once you're here, it's basically like your, all of your experience resets to zero. You're a completely new person who's here and like, oh, you have 10 years of experience? Yeah, but it's not in Silicon Valley, so it doesn't count. Um, which I always found kind of weird, but I guess it makes sense because the ecosystem is just so different here. And the biggest difference that I've noticed was how differently engineers here think than in a lot of other places. It's a lot, a lot less emphasis on being technically perfect and just technically amazing, regardless of what you hear about the interviewing stories and the lead code stuff. There's a lot more emphasis on engineers who have a good feeling for delivering business value and making trade-offs between this isn't worth doing right and that we need to have this, uh, like just that feeling and that I guess battle scars or whatever you want to call it between when to do something perfectly and absolutely correct like a, like in a textbook versus get it out and focus on the business value and just those trade-offs it's crazy how big of an impact those day-to-day -day engineering decisions can have on the overall trajectory of the entire startup yeah especially when you talk about these decisions they a lot of them are sink or swim you know if you make the wrong one you're definitely mm -hmm. not doing it and i can definitely relate to that because i i did work i do work for a lot of the uh startups in the world so that definitely is a lot of my strong background i guess is that i get exposed to these you know crazy decisions sometimes and like mm -hmm. you do have to consider so many things and very fortunate since you are working in a startup you get more exposed to it as opposed yep. to for example if you're in a company with five thousand plus employees you're, that might not be your concern at the end of the day. It yeah. might be somebody else's. So being in the Bay Area and specifically working for a startup in the Bay Area, mm -hmm. you, I, I definitely have seen what you're describing where people, not only you have to know how to do your lines of code and all of that, mm -hmm. but you also got to be uh, thinking outside of the box and considering yeah. the other you know, engineering operations resources and all the kind of stuff that goes into that. So 
uh, just for context, we are in San Francisco at the moment. <laughs> that's uh, that's yeah. going to be helpful. Um, one thing that I do know you love sharing about and you have shared a lot about is being a senior software engineer. Mm -hmm. So it's it sounds aggressive. It sounds intimidating. Well, everything in the Bay Area in tech sounds aggressive at the end of the day. But um, when we talk about going from zero to one, it's basically being not a software engineer to a software engineer. But then the step after that, right? Yeah. Like, how do you grow from that point? So just to recap real quickly is as a full-time employee, I mean, even as a freelancer, you do have like, I guess, different titles going mm -hmm. on, but it's easier to understand with a full-time employee. Um, you'll be, I guess, joining as if you're fresh out of college and then you have a full-time employee, you'll be coming in here, full-time employee, you have a whatever. Sometimes they don't even say junior software engineer anymore. They just give you like an L1 or like something. Yeah. Uh, or I, th I think the latest one I've heard is associate software engineer. Oh, yeah. Or that as well. So that's, that's another one they started throwing out there. Um, and then comparatively, just one thing actually that I don't know if people are, uh, I guess, obvious with is what's the difference between a freelancing and full-time employee like just quick like mm -hmm. distinctions between them if you know any uh, uh so freelancers are you there's two there's multiple kinds of freelancing you have the regular contracting where it's like um staff augmentation they hire you you pre you behave pretty much like a full-time mm -hmm. employee you're just paid via contract because whatever then you have the more freelancers. Uh, this is especially common in design. You have it in software engineering as well, but to a lesser extent, where they hire you to build a specific project. Um, very common in marketing websites because you don't want, uh, like your main software engineers could build your marketing site, but it's not worth their time. So what they like to do is hire freelancers to just churn out those pages. It's a lot of, usually it's very repetitive work or very specialized work where we don't want to build this uh, expertise in-house or we don't, yeah, we don't want it or we don't have it or whatever. So we just hire someone to come mm -hmm. do a job for a month or two or even for a week or two and then we move on. So that's, it's very, it's a lot more, that, that kind of freelancing is very uh, like constrained, very focused on a specific thing. And then you have uh, more consulting-y or solo, consult solo consultants where it's more about giving, being hired because you're an expert on a thing and you give advice on how to do it, but you don't actually implement it yourself. So that, those are kind of the three freelancing consulting-y consultant things. As a full-time employee, it's more about, it's almost like being a freelancer on retainer. You're the software engineer expert. We're going to have an endless stream of projects that you need to work on, and we're going to ask you for feedback on those. You're gonna help design them. You're gonna help decide what to and what not to build. You're, you're more of a, like a fully integrated partner inside the company where you have a specific area, usually, especially as engineers, you usually have a specific area of expertise, and then you do a lot of work around that area of expertise. You also train new people who come in, men, do mentoring, uh, drive, like it becomes more of a long-term kind of engagement. Yeah, long-term commitment, long-term concerns, long-term yeah. loads of sleepless nights because you think about problems I wrote more than a year ago. Exactly. Because exactly. <laughs> you're on the hook for those. <laughs> and that's yeah. a, it's yeah. a good, I guess, a contrast between a full-time a full employee and, a, and mm -hmm. a contractor and slash consultant at that point. And then if we talk about just quickly on the operation side, of like the engineering operation side between a contractor, contractor, mm -hmm. freelancer, and a full-time employee, um, I guess it's fair to say that we're mostly on a salary if you're a full-time employee yep. as opposed to if you are freelancing, you'll be on a contract depending on a rate per hour, for example. So yep. I'm assuming that's like... Yeah, you can do rate per hour or much better is to charge per, uh, per project. 
so you can do value-based pricing. Um, I think the biggest difference, if you had to summarize it, is that as a full-time employee, you are going to have to maintain the shit that you build. Mm -hmm. As a freelancer, you don't. So what ends up happening is that on average, a lot of freelancers slash contractors write less maintainable code because it's not their concern. They're not incentivized to make it maintainable. Exactly. Whereas if you're like, you own this part of the product, you're going to be working on this for two years. You're going to think a lot differently about how you build that code. Right. And there are incentives for full-time employees for doing that because as a full-time employee, you do get exposed to obviously some bit of equity. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, if you're fortunate enough, <laughs> yeah. it's never guaranteed how it is. But um, I guess that is part of the reason why some people will be a full-time employee is that most of the time as a contractor or as a freelancer, you won't have any share yeah. of the equity of the company. Yeah. Which I guess it makes sense because when you're a full-time employee, that's where the commitment is. That's where mm -hmm. you know uh, the future kind of yep. lies within that. So yeah, that's a great contrast at the end of the day. I keep on saying it just to put people that are currently freelancing, people currently um, full-time employee, like mm -hmm. what they what they could see on the other side because everybody says it. The grass is going on the other side, yep. but it's just good to know this breadth of knowledge between yep. the two. Um, if we go back to going from software engineer to senior software engineer, mm -hmm. it's not easy. Nobody realizes when they become one. It's the same thing as a founder, basically. Like yep. You don't know if you become a founder and you've done extensive and you've shared extensive knowledge about it. So I think what we could start with is basically, we're going to talk about the path to senior mm -hmm. software engineering. What do you consider as a senior software engineering? Like. What I'm trying to figure out is, do you include like staff, principal, architect into that, mm -hmm. or do you have like your own very specific definition, sorry, of a senior software engineer? Yeah, so I think it's a bit of both. Um, the, the problem right now in the industry, I think, is that titles are kind of meaningless, and you see a lot of people who get, in, get a job, and then if, especially if the company is growing within two or three years, you will, your title will be senior software engineer, just because, hey, you've been here for two or three years, we have a bunch of new people, we got to give you a different title than all the new people who have no idea what's going on. Um, but I don't think those are real, or those aren't true senior software engineers, because what you need to be a true senior engineer is the experience and the battle scars of shooting yourself in the foot time and time again. And that's when you become really valuable to startups is there's a huge difference between hiring someone who is like, yes, I can build and figure out anything, which is what usually happens when you're a mid-level engineer or a senior engineering title is, with enough time and resources, you will figure out how to solve pretty much any problem. But as a true senior engineer, what happens is that you can tell the company which problems aren't worth solving when when should you you're like you know i've done i've tried to do this like five different times it's totally not worth our time we should just pay that startup to do it for us or yeah there's there's uh, dragons here if we get into this area it's going to blow up in our face and we should try this other thing instead it's like when you can be a much better partner to your pms and everyone else on the team is because you can you can fort you can you have essentially like a sixth sense of what's going to work and what's not going to work. Um, and that I think that sixth sense is trainable, but you do get this feeling for, yeah, you know, if we just tweak that requirement a little bit, and it, it's probably still going to solve the problem that you're trying to solve, except it's going to take us two hours instead of three days. Yeah. And I mean, what's the benefit of that? Well, the benefit is you save a lot of time on it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Um, and that's how you get, like, I'm on a team right now where, uh, so there's different ways of building a team, but the team I'm on right now prioritized everyone who we're hiring at the beginning is a senior engineer, like a proper, true, experienced senior engineer. And what's been really fascinating with watching that is that we were able, the company, obviously the market is there as well, but in a year, the company quintupled in size. Mm-hmm. Like we went from 30 or 40 people to 170 in just over a year. And as much as I love beginner engineers or junior engineers or mid-engineers, I just don't think it would be possible if the team was like that. Because you just when you're trying to grow that fast, you just don't have time for people to for really smart people who can figure it out versus people who are really smart and already have figured it out. Yeah. I mean it's Obviously, it's not a simple equation. Like it's yeah. not a one one rule fits all kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But the context that you're saying, the 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 requirements, the concerns. Like when you're saying, yes, okay, do we even have the time to figure out a problem? That's always a discussion, at least for in the startup world. Is yeah, that like exactly. people talk about that very very often? And even all the stuff that you mentioned so far, like the distinction of. Um, I, I like sometimes throwing the word peaking out there. Some people just end up peaking in terms mm-hmm. of just like execution-wise. They're able to execute it and blah, 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 and they peak at some point. The thing with describing the software engineer is that they don't really peak, do they? They just, they're these like information sponge beasts that just mm-hmm. like ends up knowing all this information, but also applying it and thinking outside the box. Yep. And the really good distinction, well, the good contrast that you've been putting out there is that being a software engineer shouldn't be really time-based. It should be more like, experience slash knowledge slash execution base at mm-hmm. the end of the day and you can't really put a time into that right yep. like some people might be honestly they will have the mindset of software a senior software engineer very quickly and mm-hmm. they'll be like holy crap like do they really think like that and they do and they're they could be really young as far yep. as i know but then you'll sorry and then you'll have like people that are software engineers for 10 years plus mm-hmm. and they still don't have that mindset they're still just like you know time based oh i'm a software engineer because i've been in the industry for 10 years but in terms of thinking outside the box and applying and thinking about the concerns that you don't see, that's mm-hmm. always a like, harder part. So I, I really do like your description of a senior software engineer when you put it that way, because the description of time base is really, you know, it's loose, you know? Yeah. It's not because you've done three years there that Yeah, you it's have like, this... um, do you have 10 years of experience or do you have one year of experience 10 times? Yeah, <laughs> very, yeah very good way, very constructive way of putting it. I like that. Yeah. And then um, a lot of times the other way that I've heard people describe it actually is when they talk about like finding solutions, right? Mm-hmm. Most of the time when you have a lesser senior mindset, I guess, it would be finding a solution that works as opposed to if you would be thinking outside the box and more of a senior mindset, it'd be like finding the best solution that works. Yep. Just because I think we all know that there's, so, there's like probably 60 million ways of solving a problem at the end of the day. So really, really like uh, when you're talking about the senior mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that you actually did uh, point out is interviews for senior roles. Interview for senior software engineering. Um, what's the difference? Because I feel like a lot of people have already been scarred by the you know entry level going into the software yeah. world. Let's dive into a little bit past that. The bit mm-hmm. where it's like, what's different about a you know more senior software engineering interview compared to cool. the entry one? Yeah, so I've been actually doing a lot of interviewing lately, um, and it completely changes your perspective on what does and doesn't matter in, in an interview. And the biggest difference between interviewing for a senior position and not is that the more senior you are, the more the cultural fit matters. The more the questions are, yes, we ask you to code in an interview or we ask something that looks like a lead code question but really isn't, 
those are more like softballs, um, especially from a senior engineer, you would expect them to be able to certain classes of problems, they should be able to just solve without really thinking about it. If you have, if you, if you struggle with solving that kind of problem, you're not ready. Um, and it's not because like we, not because lead code is super important or anything like that. It's more like uh, at, that, at that level, that's kind of the question is, can you run a block? Uh, like you're interviewing marathoners and you ask them to run for a block and they're like, oh my God, I can't run for a block. I can't just show you that. Like, well, if you're a marathoner, you can run a block just to show me that you can run. Um, so it's more like a soft, it's, those, those questions end up being very soft all, but it's more about the signal that you show around how you write code, how you approach it. Like the, one of my favorite interviews for seniors is being like, here's an app that is kind of crappy. Here's a user story, take it away. And you get to see how they break down the story, what kind of questions they ask, how they collaborate with the rest of the team, how they Google, how they solve problems, how, they how do they debug. And that sort of thing is, tells you a lot more than whether they actually solve the problem. Yeah. And we've definitely hired people who like, don't even finish the challenge, but the, w the way in which they don't finish the challenge uh, is so good that we decide to hire them and they then end up being really good senior engineers. Exactly. That's where the, um, as you're saying, it's less objective. There's not like yeah. one objective of completing that within this amount of time, whatever. When we're talking about these more uh, elaborate roles, more senior roles at the end of the day is that the first part, I definitely do notice that um, you kind of throw in a softball. It's just because they're ingrained, as in like mm -hmm. they rarely prepare intensely for the first phase of it, just because mm -hmm that's probably the stuff that they've been doing daily. And it's just like knowing the back of their hand at the end, just at that point, because yep. they just stare it so often. And then when you're talking about the later stages where you would have like these problems that uh, is more than just one part of the code, more than one code base, for mm -hmm. example, is that you need to consider different integrations into it, how yep. it interacts with all of it. And a lot of times nowadays, we're probably going to throw the word APIs and like mm -hmm. REST is probably big just because it needs to communicate with a lot of stuff. and there's right ways of doing that and there's yep. definitely like bad ways of doing it. And those definitely surface. So that's the technical side. Mm -hmm. And then the other bit that you were mentioning in terms of like, how do they work with people? Because as a, as a senior software engineer, in terms of like, you know, what you do daily, it's not just looking at your code and just figuring out the problem. It's like making sure that the code you write also benefits other people, but mm -hmm. also if you need to pair somebody on it, you can do it. And if there's some underlying concerns that needs to be translated, it needs to be documented somewhere. So. Yeah. It's like a whole jumble eye of all of it. Actually, now that I mentioned that, maybe it'll be interesting for you to think about is what does like, I guess, the role of a software engineering do as a full-time employee within, within an engineering team? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so usually when you start out, either when you're new on a team, there's a lot of coding and it's really fun. You get problems and you solve them and you bang out code and it's amazing. But then as you get more ingrained in the team or as you grow in your seniority, I guess, or in your senior mindset, you end up working more and more as a for force multiplier for the rest of the team. You're solving other people's problems. You'll help, you're helping out with this thing. You're jumping into that meeting to help resolve an architectural concern. Um, and a really interesting one that I've been thinking about lately is how, as a senior engineer, you have to really think about second order effects of your code as well. It's not just about solving the problem. It's about how do I solve this problem in a way that somebody else who comes in a month later will be able to understand my code and what kind of practices does it encourage in the rest of the team? And there's a lot of that sort of thing going on as well. So just 
a lot more, a lot less banging out code and a lot more like structuring everyone else and helping everyone else and force multiplying the team. Yeah, and seeing what is not obvious and what is not explicitly mm-hmm. shown. So this problem is like, oh, if we do it this way, we're screwing over like some other part to it. So really yep. just uh, voicing out and, you know, engineers are not always known to be the mm-hmm. voicing out and going out of the way. But when we're talking about qualities of a software engineer, they, they do have this confidence and this uh, at least insight of pointing stuff out at the right time and then mm-hmm. the right concerns at the end. That's really, really cool. And then if we talk about the other stuff that you do in terms of like mentoring and mm-hmm. uh, even the engineering resource size, the hiring, like those are stuff that they do as well, right? Yeah. Um, usually companies, you um, like the best way to interview software engineers is to have other software engineers interview them because after all, you're, these are people you're going to be working with. So, uh, Often everyone is interviewing or some people who show more of a inclination or more of a like not hating it for it. I don't think anyone really loves interviewing people, um, especially not when it gets, I think the most I've done was three or four interviews in the same week. That gets to be a lot, but it's um, that's definitely part of it is just growing the team. And then when the, when new people come, how do you integrate them into the team very quickly? Mm-hmm. How do you structure everything so that they can integrate quickly, so that they can learn? Um, and just being there as a resource, I guess. Yeah, onboarding. That's always a fun bit, where it's like trying to onboard somebody, especially as a senior engineer. Like You don't want to show in your face that you've been scarred by so many things around mm-hmm. there, but uh, being reliable is definitely one way to describe it. Yep. When somebody can't say that, hey, look, this person is reliable in doing all these factors, not only coding, architecturing, hiring, mentoring, mm-hmm. those are definitely, you know, the qualities that you'd be like, yeah, he's pretty much a software engineer. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. a senior software engineer, because it really helps. Um, I love asking the opposite a lot of times. What do they do? I guess that's kind of what they do at work, basically. Mm-hmm. Like some, like senior software engineers, that's kind of what you would describe it. Do you have any like just fun anecdotes or some way to describe somebody as senior software engineer outside of work? Like what, what would you expect to see because like i'll give an example like fortunately like i've met a lot of senior software engineers and you kind of look and kind of figure out what do they do outside of work in terms of like how they are compared to like you know somebody who's just a regular software engineer and the way i see it it's actually quite funny there's a there's actually okay there's not one right answer but there's a big divide in terms of like people that are senior software engineers outside of work they love i guess working on side projects or like Mm -hmm. they love doing more than just their nine to five most of the time they love exploring they love whether it's a new technology that they want to do on their own they'll do it they'll be like oh i'll pick up go because it's Mm -hmm. fun or uh they'll they'll you know host a podcast i don't know yeah (laughs) Um, but yeah what's your take on that so this is basically the non-work side of a software Uh, engineer so i think there's there's a lot of people who uh who just do a nine to five and they're and they're great engineers, but they're usually not the people who love engineering, who are really into it. And as they're, mo- they're likely also not going to be the people who end up pushing the industry forward just because of the way the industry works. Um, where there's, so I think there's like two different kinds of people. There's those of us who really are see, see software engineering as more of a calling and we find ways to think about it and read about it outside of work, um, like either doing personal, doing side projects or blogging or working on open source. There's a lot of people who work on open source just because it gives them more interesting challenges than they get at work. Because at work you often, you have to do whatever is important for the business, whereas on your your side project you can just do whatever. Like 
Uh, I know my, my boss right now is on the side working on a video game where he, t- he took a video game that he likes and is trying to make it multiplayer. Well, yeah, yeah. And that's just a project for him because he likes to, to code and because he's a manager, he never codes at work. So uh, I'm similar. I like, I like to pick up interesting projects that kind of challenge me mentally more than the kind of challenges that you get at work. Um, I like blogging because that's a really good way for me to s- synthesize my thoughts and to I use it as a tool for thinking a lot and for learning. Um, and, you know, it's also important just to not burn out. So you got to have some hobbies that are not coding. Yeah, yeah. For me, it's like yelling into a pill. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. That's not true. It's an outlet. What I'm saying is that like when you talk about uh, doing stuff outside of work that mm-hmm. is still tech related, like sometimes it can be completely not tech related. Fine. Mm-hmm. Go on a motorcycle ride. Sure. Not tech related. Um, but people... Like, I'm not saying that you can't be a senior software engineer if you don't do it, but mm-hmm. you see this tendency that people that outside of work have this genuine interest of, yeah. when you're saying pushing the barrier, I mean, just figuring out, is this possible? Can I take this game, make it a multiplayer, and shove it inside a web browser and have it mm-hmm. run there on whatever, the GPL or whatever language, processing language yeah. I think out there? That's always questions that you don't get to tackle as a day-to-day stuff, mm-hmm. but it's people that live kind of this lifestyle that helps getting into, I guess, you know, if you want to be a senior software engineer, it really propels them that way. So yeah, really, really fun to hear your perspective on that. And um, I guess I just want to tie off the bow in terms of talking about, you know, career-wise of a software mm-hmm. engineer, like how do you know what's the next step? As in like, I've already mentioned that people don't, sometimes don't even know that they're software, senior software engineer, sorry. Mm-hmm. Like how do you recognize it and how do you even go to the next one from that point? Or there, there's no obvious sign that says like, hey, you've reached this phase or whatever. So what, what's your take on that? Oh man, that's a really good question. So like you said, you it's kind of a spectrum. You slide into it and you don't even realize that you were there until somebody else says it. Um, it's like those philosophy questions. When you're putting pebbles on a pile, when does it go from three pebbles to a pile of pebbles? Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of similar here. Just at some point, the category shifts, and voila, you're in a new category. But I think what's important is to switch jobs often enough to actually keep pushing your career forward, because those are usually the inflection points where you get the most bang for buck per, per uh, like the most bang for effort or for unit of effort. And the way you can notice that, I think, is mostly by you have to have some sort of north star, some somewhere that you're aiming, and then you gotta see if the company you're with is still push, is still giving you the ability to go in that direction. If they're still giving you what they need. When I actually realized this was watching the F1 documentary a couple of years ago, Drive to Survive, where I think it was Ricardo or somebody else who said, "Yeah, I had to quit the team because I realized that I still have it in me. I want to be a champion." I know I'm good enough to be the champion, but this team just can't get me there. The team itself isn't good enough. The car isn't good enough. The team isn't good enough. I can't be a champion in this team. So you jump to a bigger team and you end up with this like a stair-step career where you jump onto the next step and then you grow, grow, grow as much as you can. And at some point, the company that you're with or the team that you're with just can't give you the next run. They can't give you bigger challenges. The company doesn't have the impact that you want to have. So you have to switch to the next bigger bet. Yeah, the leap of faith. Yeah, pretty <laughs> that's, much. Uh, I think that's uh, very, very relatable. A lot of people have been in that position in that shoe and trying to figure out how that works most of the time. So it's it's good sometimes, actually. Like when you talk about 
bigger companies will have a very structured uh, ladder, software engineering ladder. Mm -hmm. um, I think I did an episode on that at some point. I'm pretty sure you talked a lot about it on your blog as well. And that's the obvious one where it's like, you've reached this level, you've reached yep. that level, and that's the obvious bit. But then when you're talking about like these leap of faith and knowing like deep down what that works, it's not as simple as following a mm -hmm. ladder at the end, which is why you see stories like that, where it's like when you jump from here to there, yep. that kind of just takes another spin into your world. And mm -hmm. trust me, I think a lot of engineers everywhere around the world is relatable or relating to this because, you know, yep. we don't only think about code at the end of the day, basically. Yep. Um, one thing I promise I definitely want to dive into is um, your book, mm -hmm. your book and everything related to web development. And just want to say congratulations again, because it's always tough to get into, you. you know, writing to begin with. So you've been blogging consistently for a long time, which is already super great, but then being able to put that into a book that is resourced, provide to everybody, that's even more admirable as a feat. Tell, tell me a little bit more to begin with. Like what's the title of the book? Like what's, what, what, what was that about to begin with? The book is called Serverless Handbook. And it's, the idea is that it's Serverless Handbook for front-end engineers. And I think we're in an inflection point of how we build web apps, how we build websites, where Front-end engineers who know JavaScript are becoming more and more empowered to own entire full-stack applications. With the serverless approach, you no longer need to know the DevOps stuff. You don't really even need to know much about servers. If you can write a JavaScript function, you can make it run on the cloud somewhere. Somebody else will take care of actually making it run. And you can just focus on the business logic of the application that you're building and you can build an entire full-stack app. So that's kind of where the idea for that book came from, was realizing that, okay, so we have this inflection point, and a lot of people are approaching this inflection point from a back-end engineer perspective, where they're mostly griping about how this isn't as good and isn't giving them as much control as they would like. But, they, but you don't really want that control. That control is a red herring that just makes you waste time and spend a lot of effort on something that should be automated and we are starting to automate it. But at the same time, most people's entry into web development is from the front end. Uh, they start with JavaScript, they start with CSS, they can build a web website, and but then, okay, shit, how do I save some data between website reloads? Or how do I make this work so that if you start in the, uh, on the web and you then go on your phone, because you can't use local storage, where do I put the data? How do I make this stuff communicate? So I wrote the book from that perspective, is it uses serverless as a hook and as an approach, but it also talks more broadly about how, how backends work, how to think about uh, designing systems, how to think about systems engineering and how to bring everything together so that you can build a product on your own or own a piece of the product from the smallest start to really big scale. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely gonna link it. So don't worry, we'll, we'll check that out for sure. What I do wanna emphasize a lot of stuff that you're saying is that visual. So what I mean by that is that most uh, people that think of software engineers that make websites are literally the engineers that are in there in the HTML, building little mm -hmm. blocks and everything. But if, we, if we're getting a little bit more technical is that software engineers, any kind of software engineers, you'll have back engineers that won't touch a single line of HTML in their yeah. life ever. And they exist well, they're also software engineers. And there's also, you know, the DevOps engineers and mm -hmm. uh, database engineers who want security engineers and reliability engineers, they, they all exist. But what's interesting is that this wave of newer people that get into tech, 
there's this attraction of working on the front end. There's this attraction of building whatever components or building mm -hmm. pretty pages. Like, oh, look at my shadow on this box. I'm a, yeah. I'm a geek about that. I'm a very yeah. visual design people. I talk about color palettes way too much. Um, <laughs> that's my kind of thing. And which is why I think this is really, really attractive in terms of like the knowledge you could share. And then the problems that you encounter, as you were saying, like, oh, it's not persisting. Why, why is none of this? And mm -hmm. then spinning up like a server. If I may break down real quickly a architecture of, you know, a very modern, mm -hmm. sorry, not modern, a very agreed structure of a website is you have your front end client. That's your web app at the end of the day, which is where, you know, you get to put the HTML, the box and all mm -hmm. that. And then usually to power that, you have a server in the back end that receives API and then you could get more information out of it. And mm -hmm. that server talks to a database, which kind of persists. So I think yeah. that model is like a very standard, straightforward one. Mm -hmm. But when you're talking about, uh, especially in your new book, is that you're talking about this new modern way of looking at the world, this inflection point, which is why I think it's great because you got loads of historically written books about the mm -hmm. web, but this is a definitely fresh approach to it. Yep. So for the people that don't really get what is serverless, mm -hmm. so like I kind of gave a, a already quick little model of you know what you would expect a web application to thrive on. Can you give us a bit more on like what serverless to begin with? And then we could just dive. <laughs> after yeah. That. So traditionally, like you said, we had servers on the back end and the server in this case, it's kind of an overloaded word, but the basic server is a computer that is running a piece of software. That's a web server. And that web server is then responding to requests from your API or from your client and returning either files or JSON or whatever. But it's this uh, process on a computer that's running constantly mm -hmm. and it always has to be up and it can take some number of connections before it starts failing and crapping out because it's overloaded. With serverless, you don't have any of that anymore. You just have a piece of business logic, uh, like a JavaScript function that you put on AWS Lambda or Netlify functions or Gatsby functions, or there's a bunch of them nowadays. And you write just the function and then that function itself gets a URL. And when you call the URL, like with a browser request, there's some process that is invisible to you that wakes up, says, oh, I have a request to serve, runs your function and returns the response from that function. So you end up with this model where you have JavaScript functions that you can essentially execute from anywhere in the world with just the URL. And the response you get is just whatever that function returns. And there's none of the other mess around it. There's no servers. There's no thinking about how many servers I need. What do I need to provision? You don't have to make sure that like um, your computer in your high school bedroom is still running and serving yeah. requests. <laughs> it's just, it wakes up, it serves the request and it vanishes. There's some reuse and stuff for, um, for performance reasons, but you can really start thinking of these things as just, it's a JavaScript function that takes a request and returns a response. Yeah, and I mean, it sounds complicated for sure. It sounds complicated when, when we talk serverless, like, you know, as I was saying, some might be say it's intimidating, frightening and all that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. But um, I guess one analogy that I love hearing whenever about this is when, uh, when you do these deep dive into how serverless or whatever, basically, you know, when you have a restaurant, there's a front of the house, which is mm -hmm. basically the people, the users that come in there, sit down and eat. And then you have the server of all the, yeah. the waiter, the coming into getting your order all that and then that all feeds back to the kitchen and the kitchen mm -hmm. is kind of where you know the logic happens the magic happens yep. and that's kind of where the the serverless versus the server kind of gets swapped out right because like most of the time as a user you don't really see what's behind the kitchen mm -hmm. you don't see what's happening and what's good with this book is that you're 
exploring this new wave of tackling how a kitchen works basically like how does the kitchen work at the end how does this serverless which is really popular because it's uh, getting more available i guess through aws gcp mm -hmm. azure a lot of people are providing that and yep. you know just as a complete noob about it i guess me in this case actually i love serverless <laughs> um, uh, being having this resource that you're talking about um, is really really useful one thing actually i, I want to take your opinion is mm -hmm. javascript it's I'm not gonna say controversial. There's people that love it, people that hate it. It's very powerful. Um, the reason why I guess it's so spoke about, whether on Twitter or in person, is that when people usually learn web development, they'll usually go through the visual part, I guess, at least mm -hmm. front-end web development, is that they'll do HTML, CSS, those are like the intro to it, but yep. very quick after JavaScript comes in. Yep. Like that's like, undoubtedly, you have to know that at that point. Mm -hmm. um, my question to you would probably be like, okay, what do you think about JavaScript? That's probably number one. <laughs> And then uh, we're going to talk about how does JavaScript kind of gets mostly related to front end, but how does it actually transition to this lobbing it to back end? So first question is, what do you think of JavaScript? I, I actually think JavaScript is like the best language ever. Uh, it definitely has its words and there's a lot of stuff that happened in the late 90s and early 2000s that made JavaScript bad. But I think modern JavaScript at, since ES6 and the new now that it's evolving every year, it's actually a really, really good programming language. Uh, we have execution environments that make it really fast. We have a lot of modern language features that keep being improved and added. Um, if you kind of ignore all of the bad parts and just use the modern parts, it's a really solid language uh, that unfortunately still gives you a lot of room to shoot yourself in the foot. But if you kind of, I guess, what I love is a subset of JavaScript. There's definitely ways to write really bad JavaScript that will make your head hurt. But most of the way people write JavaScript in the modern style, in, in modern companies, is a really good language. And like every single device in the world has an execution environment for it. No other language can say that. Yeah. I guess like why would you think people would talk crap about JavaScript? I think I, I'm, I'm on both sides. I do all of it. I mm -hmm. love and really hate JavaScript, so like I could easily go onto it. But yeah, what as a as a you know common software engineer, yeah. software engineer talk, like why do people crap on software? Well, sorry, so on JS. I think a lot of it comes down to the history of JavaScript. The story goes that Brandon Ike was given a task of, hey, we need some way to do dynamic stuff on this HTML things, and he built a language in a weekend, and that became JavaScript. And a lot of people who learned JavaScript in that era or in the early 2000s saw a lot of the words. Every browser had a different implementation. You had to wrap everything in a bunch of conditionals because it literally worked differently in different browsers. That has since become standardized. Um, it also has some unintuitive semantics around context and stuff like that. But in modern JavaScript, we can basically just not use those. And then it becomes a normal language that everyone loves. Yeah. Um, you know, it's the same as like, if you look at C, yeah, you can treat everything in C as, uh, as a field in memory and you're going to have a really bad experience. But if you do it properly, you're going to have a nice experience. It's the same with JavaScript. I think, I think a lot of the hate for it comes from people who just either have very old opinions of JavaScript or who are... I think a lot of them are also beginners and they just haven't had the exposure to other languages as well. Yeah. 
I I guess like I could throw a couple of examples. I think like one of the gatekeeping fact of like uh, oh, a real programming language and not yeah. JavaScript. JavaScript is untyped. If you don't use any of the typing bit, JavaScript mm-hmm. is a wild wild west in terms of how yeah. you and that's where you shooting yourself what kind of comes in. So a lot of those concerns, I think what's people that are more, I guess, academic focused or can, like computer science focused is that they'll be like, yeah, JavaScript or like un, untyped language. They're kind of too loose mm-hmm. out there and like they, they might not be always the best for whatever role you want. Yeah. Java is big out there. You have like Scala, you have like Rust. Those are like more, I guess like, I don't know, I keep on saying gatekeeping. I just know people that yeah. love those stuff usually will we'll say a little bit uh, weird stuff about JS. And yeah. um, the other thing I can probably point out is that uh, JS obviously super super front end focus, whereas mm-hmm. a lot of the applications out there, like some engineers, will probably never touch yeah. the front end bit, and they've kind of been ingrained in terms of working in back end systems. And rarely you would find uh, big big old corporates running JavaScript on their back end. Yeah. But we are bridging the gap. We as in like the whole mm-hmm. industry or whatever. And you are definitely talking about the serverless, and that's where the back end with JavaScript comes in, right? Some, yeah. One one quote that I think you actually uh, mentioned that if you could JavaScript, you could back end. Mm-hmm. Um, that is so refreshing to hear. Let's bridge that gap in terms of like how how what like what does that even mean? Like right. why why are people so reluctant to think that JavaScript cannot back end to begin with? And how mm-hmm. we got to the point where hey look we can. Yeah. So uh, Node.js has been around for a while now, and Node.js is the server side execution environment for JavaScript. One of the problems with JavaScript is that you can't compile it into a binary. It's always a semi-interpreted language. I think these days it's just in time compiled, but whatever. So you're always passing around source code instead of compiled binaries, and that's something that old school programmers don't like. It also means that you have some performance hits, but the modern computers are just ridiculously fast, so that's not a problem anymore. Having Node.js has really improved the life of JavaScript over the past 10 years. That's what has enabled it to run in the backend. That's what's enabled it to interface with um, file systems and devices and all sorts of things. But what I think serverless is adding is that is the ability to just run a function and just think of your backend as a function. And as long as you're building mostly implementation logic or business logic, it's pretty much the same, whatever language you use. Yeah. Um, now obviously, you maybe not obviously, but I wouldn't want to use JavaScript to run like a bank or a financial system. It's just not safe enough for something like that because um, it's dynamically typed and all that. But if you're talking about saving likes from on a tweet or if you're or something like that, yeah, totally. Just build it in JavaScript because JavaScript is easy. It's easy to test. It has a rich ecosystem. And with serverless, because every function is running essentially on its own server, they don't hurt each other in terms of performance as much. Yeah, and I think I could definitely agree with that, because uh, especially when you mentioned the part where it's like language agnostic, a lot of times we say that, mm-hmm. uh, not only from the perspective of an engineer that can pick up multiple languages, but also from the bit where when you're building projects, like sometimes you can be a little bit more loose in terms of what language is being used there just because of the amount of features that overlap between different languages. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, you have loads of like, big old frameworks like I think Django or like Ruby on Rails, like yeah. even Meteor back then, that was like a full-blown front-end, back-end, and everything's mm-hmm. written in a single language and all that. Like there's pros and cons, performance, reliability, yeah. all that kind of stuff, but each language are pushing each other to yeah. have more features and do that, which is why the introduction of, hey, look, the new era, right? Serverless, write your back-end fun- function in JavaScript if you want, because mm-hmm. in serverless, you could also write in different languages as far yeah. as I'm understanding. Uh, that's just a different approach to it. So. 
really, really cool to have somebody talking about it from that perspective. Um, I don't want to miss this chance, but the book itself, I'm always fascinated in terms of how do you even write a book? And this is kind of tying in in terms mm -hmm. of a bit of like, how do you share your knowledge? Because the thing is like, I do these podcasts, it's really easy for me because like, I, first of all, I just love talking, I don't shut up. <laughs> and next thing, next thing you know, I just have a mic and I just plug these in. Mm -hmm. So um, this sounds a lot easier than writing a book <laughs> and then writing not only blogs book, you do loads of blogging videos mm -hmm. and also that kind of stuff. Um, but the book specifically, like, what's the process? Like, the content is great. We've definitely dive a bit in terms of, like, what that looks like. What's the process? Like, what what that entailed? How did you go from blog-ish to, boom, you got a book out there? So there's, there's a lot of steps to that process. What I usually try to do is um, there's two different concerns here. One is how to just write the book, and one is how to write the right book. When you're trying to write the right book, what I think is really important is getting feedback as early as as early as and often as possible. So I try to start experimenting. I usually just tweet first about new mm -hmm. ideas or things that are in my mind, and then I see what resonates, what what way of saying something resonates with people who are already following me or just people in general. And then when I see okay, this is something that's interesting, I usually expand it into a blog. Uh, try a few blogs and kind of meander my way through the topic as I'm exploring the topic, as I'm figuring out how to talk about the topic, what resonates with people, uh, what kind of feedback I get. And then as that grows, suddenly you, I usually start noticing, oh, I'm like ref referencing a lot of ideas between different blogs on a general topic. And then that's a good sign that there's a book in there that's hiding. Um, with the serverless handbook, I kind of already knew there was a book hiding in there. The idea came from, okay, I want to learn serverless and I started doing, working on a bunch of serverless projects and I just felt like there wasn't a good resource out there for someone to jump into serverless. It was all very, if you've been doing backend for the last 20 decades and you are an expert in all of these things, just do that. And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I kind of went from, from that perspective a lot was, how, do, how can I make serverless more approachable? Because I think it's a really good technology. Uh, so I tried to make it more approachable and kind of explored a bunch. It started as a bunch of blog posts and emails. And then when I felt like I had something that, like I had something to say and um, it was starting to come together, I kind of reorganized it, organized it into a nice flow for the book. And that's where a lot of rewriting comes. Turns out that to publish a book, you have to basically write the whole thing three times. My last check is always I read the entire book out loud mm -hmm. because I want it to sound really nice when you're... Uh, it's a good way to test that what you're saying is making sense and flows well, is reading it out loud. And that's when you really see a lot of like uh, missed, oh, this sentence is kind of weird or this word is yeah. unnecessary and that sort of thing. Yeah, you, and you do that yourself because I, I, I re-listen to my podcast myself after because I have to do the same thing. I'm, I imagine the same you know, idea is that like, you do re-look at your work a, a lot of times. Do you, I, I don't know if it's a luxury or not, do you send that to like an editor at some point or like how does that work just to have like, you know, as you're saying, like a check in there or something mm -hmm. or... So I used to have an edit, I used to pay an editor to read all of my things and it, it was great, um, but... As time went on, I kind of figured out what kind of feedback he gives me. Mm -hmm. So I started doing it myself. Um, but it's definitely useful to get other people's perspective because, you know, you always like your things the most. Bias. I'm biased. Yeah. I'm super biased. Um, 
But I really love the Neil Gaiman has a really good quote called Kill Your Darlings. And it's so hard. You read a chapter and you're like, oh my God, these two paragraphs are saying something that's really near and dear to my heart, but it just doesn't fit in the chapter. Yeah. And then you kill them. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> that's uh, yeah. I mean, you definitely got to be confident about your decision. But then again, like as you look at the whole product, it kind of mm -hmm. really, really works well. Um, one thing I don't know anything about the book publishing world, but um, is there something about like self-publishing versus like a publishing company? Like what, what exactly does that even mean to begin with? Mm -hmm. uh, so with a public, I've, I've published books both, uh, serverless handbook is self-published, but I've done, worked with publishers before as well. The nice thing about publishers is that they have a lot more structure and they are, uh, they have like essentially an assembly line of books that they want to publish. They're really good at pushing you and making sure that you're actually going to finish the book, which when you're self-publishing, it's very easy to not finish the book. Like the serverless handbook, I got all the way, almost 80, 70-80% done, and then it just sat there for a year and I didn't touch it because I got distracted with other things. Yeah. Whereas when you're working with a publisher, they're like, hey, you said last week we're going to have the next chapter, what's going on? Um, and they also organize more editors and stuff, but the, what you get out of it is a lot less in terms of financially. Mm -hmm. um, usually you get some percentage of royalties and most authors get surprisingly little from each book sale. Whereas if you're self-publishing, especially if you're doing it purely digitally, it's essentially pure margin. Like selling a PDF online, basically pure margin. You spend mm -hmm. some... You do usually spend something on marketing and ads and things like that, but it's uh, from that perspective, it's great. I published Serverless Handbook as a print book as well because I wanted to have something physical that yeah, people yeah. can have on their bookshelf. And it turns out that that's very expensive. Um, so that explains also why traditional publishers gave, gave such low royalties. Because printing a... Uh, especially the, the serverless handbook, I wanted it to feel really nice when you read it and it has a lot of color pictures and there's actually GIFs in there. Don't move, but there's GIFs in there. Yeah. <laughs> um, and printing just ends up being ridiculously expensive for these things. I know, yeah, because you're talking about an industry, right? You're talking about yeah. so many steps and it's not just some, you can't just go to somebody in this garage and be like, yeah, I'll have 50 of them printed out in a second. Yeah. There's whole, so many steps into it. Unless somebody disrupts it and make it way more affordable. But we'll think about that yeah, <laughs> in yeah. the coming future. But I just want to say congratulations big again on the book. Because as you were saying, it could take years mm -hmm. in the making, right? Sitting there for a year, it's still part of the work. It's still yeah. like, it's still living, right? That yep. whole book living there. So I think it's so fascinating to hear you talk about, oh, this is the process of the book. Because God knows if I ever am able going to be to do anything like that, basically. Mm -hmm. But, you know, at least hearing your story definitely helps uh, with me or anybody else listening to this. So big thanks on that. Uh, one thing I want to make sure that uh, I also cover is advices. So I think one of the things that uh, would be super useful is what advice would you have somebody who is a software engineer and wants to be a software senior software engineer, sorry. Mm -hmm. um, whether they want to intentionally become it or unintentionally, like what's some, you know, good general advice to have in back of their mind? Ooh. I think the best advice I can give is to just take ownership of the things you're working on. Really own and drive the outcome, not just the work. The main difference between someone who's a really great engineer and someone who has senior potential is how you approach projects, how you own them, and whether you're 
we want to solve the problem versus I'm just going to write some code and then whatever happens, happens. Really take ownership of everything you do and drive it all the way to completion, not in terms of, oh, I'm going to just give, uh, give up and be lazy, but more in terms of make sure that all of the parts get solved, not just the exact parts that were asked on the ticket. Amazing. The, the word that pops into my mind is thoughtful. Yes. Very, very thoughtful. thoughtful. I like that. And uh, the other one that actually is super cool is a quick advice on how does one person start sharing? Uh, what I mean by that is that, you know, when we do our regular job, we, it's really easy to just do that, go to bed after, do whatever activity. But mm -hmm. you need to go out of your way to be able to share this. And you do it really, really well. You have a great outreach with any kind of people that are fascinated with the tech world. So what's your advice of people that starting with nothing? Like, I'm not sharing anything at the moment, but, mm -hmm. you know, giving back a bit. Like, where, where does, uh, <laughs> how does that uh, work? I mean, the best way is to just start. Just find whatever medium works for you, whether it's podcast because you're, you like talking or even TikTok if you just like talking into a camera and just start talking about what you do, what you thought, what you learned. The most important thing is to really share your insights and opinions. And I really hate it when people just produce content. Share something new, share something interesting. Don't just rehash whatever everyone else is doing already because we have enough of that. Yeah. Um, and I think that the more you do it, the more opportunities you find to do it. Yeah. And for you, you breathe it. It's like it's something that's enjoyable. So mm -hmm. it's not, you know, it's not, it's not a brain killer in terms of like a lot of brain efforts. That's something that you breathe, you live, and then you end up doing it very, very naturally and you yep. enjoy the whole bit. So those are absolutely all sound advice. And I really, really just want to say thank you for you know, being on the show again, because not always I get the time to really pick up people's brain so deep like this. Thanks for having me. Where can people follow you? Uh, yeah, so I am on Twitter as Swizzets. If you put that in Google, you'll find a bunch of things. You can go to serverlesshandbook.dev to get my serverless handbook. Uh, seniormindset.com is a whole email series on how to think like a senior, senior engineer. And on swizzets.com, I have my blog. Amazing. Your blog, your Twitter, your YouTube as well, all yeah. that stuff. I'm definitely going to link it below. So, hey, I can say it a million times. Congratulations. And yeah, big, big, big thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And I'll catch you guys on the next one.